the therapists have the best perspective right. on the patient's mental health. They're seeing their patients. I, I don't know if you're seeing your therapist once a week. I'm seeing mine once a week. Yeah. Every week, my therapist knows exactly what's going on. They're yeah. tracking my progress. And so that data needs to be incorporated with the treatment plan. And so by creating a collaboration between yeah. our prescribers and the therapist, we're able to essentially build bespoke treatment plans at scale. So because of our, our model, we're able to do concierge mental health right, at right. scale. And what that does is, one, it improves the quality of care mm -hmm. and it seriously mitigates negative outcomes, yeah, right? When yeah. there's a problem, our therapists have 24-7 access to a world-class medical team right? just by being members of Journey. Oh, they would only get that if they were working for a large hospital yeah, system, yeah, right? So yeah. it's a huge thing that we're offering. Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hegby. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the reemergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with The Trip Report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Welcome back to the Trip Report podcast, a production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today, we're speaking with Jonathan Sabah, founder of Journey Clinical, a digital health tech company pioneering a collaborative care model for psychedelic assisted therapy. The company was founded in 2021 with the mission of creating a decentralized clinic that would enable licensed therapists to incorporate ketamine assisted therapy into their practice. Jonathan and his co founder and wife, Miriam Barth, interviewed 600 therapists before starting Journey Clinical to understand their biggest pain points and challenges. When it came to ketamine assisted therapy, a promising treatment option, the overwhelming response from therapists they interviewed was that it's difficult to find medical professionals with whom they can collaborate on care. After all, therapists don't prescribe medications, and most physicians don't do therapy. Thus, connecting therapists with partner prescribers was the core need, and with this insight, the Journey Clinical Model was born. As many who are well-steeped in the psychedelic field are aware, ketamine-assisted therapy is a promising modality for stubborn mental health conditions, especially when paired with psychotherapeutic support. However, the majority of ketamine usage for mental health is as a standalone treatment at specialized clinics. What is missing from this brick-and-mortar care delivery environment is supportive wraparound support. And in my opinion, this is the promise of technology-enabled support for psychedelic therapies. I've been a fan of the Journey Clinical Model since I first met Jonathan and Miriam back in 2021. From the outset, it was clear that they had a unique insight and mission. I should also note that Beckley Waves is an investor in Journey Clinical. In this episode, we discuss Jonathan's leaving a career in finance to study clinical psychology, the role of psychotherapy in supporting transformational perspectives, the importance of the therapeutic alliance, the origin story of Journey Clinical, and the pivot from service provider to a health tech company, the Ryan Haight Act, and the increased interest from tier one investors in the psychedelic space. And now I bring you my conversation with Jonathan Sabah. 
So Jonathan Sabah, founder, co-founder, CEO of Journey Clinical. Nice to have you on the Trip Report podcast. Welcome. Nice to be here, Zach. Always uh, a pleasure to see you. Yeah, I appreciate your time and and always enjoy catching up with you. So this will be a fun, this is the first one that other people <laughs> can, can listen and hear. But I always enjoy chatting with you because I think your company and the service that you're providing is a really unique lens into, let's call it the the landscape of the psychedelic ecosystem. And so perhaps we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, but I'm curious, we're, we're here in, in Denver for, for maps, 2023 downstairs, there's 12,000 people that are in an aircraft hangar and it's absolutely bonkers, but you started your company in 2020, 2021, 2021, 2021. So let's, what, what's your, what's your story? How do you describe yourself? How do you describe your journey up until founding a, a company in this space. Yeah, thank you. Sure. So I'm Swiss originally. I grew up in Switzerland and I spent the first 20 years of my career working in finance. I, I built two companies from the ground up. And during that time, I also moved to New York. And what happened while I was building that first company mm -hmm. was that I suffered a pretty substantial burnout. And that turned out to be the result of undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And so for most of my adult life, really, I actually suffered from anxiety, from depression, mm -hmm. from substance abuse issues. And I didn't really quite understand what was going on with me, which can be pretty terrifying. And when I moved to New York, I had built that second company and I, I was kind of on a downward spiral. Mm. And a friend of mine said, well, why don't you try ayahuasca? So when I tried ayahuasca, it was really transformative. It's very corny, but yeah. it really Straight saved my life. Straight into the deep end, too. Straight into the deep end, yeah. <laughs> and I tried it once, and then I did it seven more times oh, in, wow. that's in a period of two weeks. Yeah. And I continued to work with it for, for several years. But after a while, I, I really couldn't process those experiences anymore. And so I started to work with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And that was extremely helpful, very transformative. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And working with these medicines was very transformative for me. I lived a much better life, a much more integrative life. It also prompted a career pivot. Mm. I quit finance mm. and I went back to school at the age of 38. I didn't have a GED, so I had to do my GED at 38. You went back to high school. I went back to high school at 38. <laughs> uh, and it was really a cool experience. I think one of the most inspiring moments of this whole path for me was actually to go to uh, Far Rockaway and passed my GED. And there were 50-year-olds there. No and way. It was really? amazing. There were 50-year-olds there passing their GED. They were making it happen at the age of 50, yeah. going and doing it. I was really, really inspired oh, by that. Oh, that's incredible. It was really great. And so when I, when I passed that, I went back to the new school in New York, and I, I, I became a bachelor, and I studied clinical psychology there. And while I was in school... Uh, and, that, and that decision to study clinical psychology, I imagine, is directly related to your experience with your healing journey. Absolutely. Yeah. What happened was that I, I, I ended that second company and I started to work a little bit in crypto. It really wasn't something that I, I, I felt passionate about. Mm -hmm. And my wife, who's my co-founder now, Miriam, she told me, she said, listen, you need to stop. You need to take time and stop mm -hmm. and figure out what you want to do with your life. Mm -hmm. And that's a great luxury that I was able to have, which most people don't. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very blessed to have had that moment in time. 
And I took her advice and I stopped and I did a lot of yoga <laughs> for a while. But mostly what happened was that I was trying to figure out what am I passionate about? Yeah. What do I really feel a call to doing? And it became overwhelmingly clear that I had been a patient for years. I was fascinated by psychotherapy and psychology and the concept of psychology. I was, I loved Jung and yeah. Freud and I was just really IFS and I was yeah. deep into all you of that. And I also wanted to work with these medicines and I wanted to bring them to the world. And I wasn't, I'm not a shaman. I haven't grown up in the jungle. This is not um, a mythology or a language that I understood. And so I was trying to relate yeah. what was a path that made sense to me. And so modern medicine and psychotherapy, I didn't have it in me to go and do, become an MD. Yeah. It was just... <laughs> at 38. At 38, it was really, a lot. Yeah. And so, so I decided that psychology was the right path. Yeah. And I went to school and I, and, I, and I did very well. And it's actually, I don't know if you've ever, if you went back to school later in life, but being an adult student, it's an amazing experience. Yeah. You're so motivated. I had a 4.0 GPA. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, like if I had an A minus, it was a catastrophe. I'm also a very competitive person. But so, so I, I did that. And after a while, I, I had this experience, which I honestly believe is pretty common to anybody who does, you know, any kind of work on themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's that, we're not separate beings, right? Mm -hmm. we, I think we reject who we are at a certain moment in time. Mm -hmm. And we have this image of becoming someone completely new. And mm -hmm. I, I definitely had that. I was like, I'm never going back to finance mm -hmm. or business. I'm, I'm going to be a therapist and I'm going to live a more humble life mm -hmm. and be of service. And, and at some point, those ideas become mutually exclusive, but mm -hmm. they're not actually. Mm -hmm. and in reality, what happened was that I enjoy building companies. Mm -hmm. And I am good at it and mm -hmm. I enjoy building businesses mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm good at it mm -hmm. and I enjoy psychotherapy and mm -hmm. I'm, I think I'd be good at it. Mm -hmm. and, and so all of these things came together. And yeah. so it, it, it really felt very natural for me to bring my background yeah. as an entrepreneur and my goal of being totally. a therapist and bringing these medicines to the world. Yeah. And so that's how I actually came to Build Journey. That's super interesting. Was there, was there an aha moment? Was it a, a light bulb that went off or was it a more of a slow build over time? What was sort of like the, the birth of the idea, right? I'm interested in the initial vision. Did it come to you in a flash? How did that come to pass? Well, what came to me in a flash is the logo through ayahuasca. And a funny story is that, so this shape, not the yeah. colors, the, the, the colors are actually inspired by ayahuasca. Yeah. But the shape came to me in a flash. And originally I, it was going to be white on white. And I wanted to call the company Void. And, <laughs> and a friend of mine was like, dude, culture's really, not ready for that. That's really scary, man. I don't want to do And this is a really like very big guy, very solid. He's like, that's scary, man. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we, we called it Journey and changed the colors. But uh, the idea came to me. I was, the experience I had with my therapist, I mm -hmm. think, was a big source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. When I was doing ayahuasca, ayahuasca really, and it's corny to say, saved my life. Mm -hmm. But when I couldn't process these, these ceremonies that became the same ceremony over and over and over again, having access to a mental health professional mm -hmm. who understood what I was going through, mm -hmm. who was able to build a therapeutic alliance with me, provide a container yeah. where I could process that experience yeah. and have more of them yeah. with him yeah. and move forward was a huge accelerator in my healing yeah. process. And so that to me was a massive unlock in the way psychedelic assisted psychotherapy had to be delivered. Had you worked with a therapist prior to your experiences with ayahuasca or? Yeah. 
I, I, I had a huge burnout and I had a psychiatrist in Switzerland yeah. who saved my life. Yeah. He gave me SSRIs yeah. and he gave me benzodiazepines and anxiety meds and antipsychotics yeah. and I really needed them. Yeah. And I, I'm not against any of those medications. Yeah. They actually saved my they life. Saved life. Yeah. So yes, I've been in therapy for a long time mm -hmm. and it's been so beneficial to me. So yeah. it made a lot of sense yeah. that I was trying to understand how to incorporate that. Right in that healing process. They're all tools and modalities. Sure, sure. So, so that was a, an experience that made a lot of sense to me and that I, I, I thought would benefit many people mm -hmm. working with these medicines. It's not to say that there aren't great facilitators out there who are indigenous, who have traditional practices, but for me, that was very relevant. Uh, and so from there, we started to consider, well, what's the main barrier to entry? Like, how are we going to expand access to these treatments responsibly? Mm -hmm. And it became very apparent, and, and not just to me, right? MAPS figured the same thing out, yeah. Compass Pathways, like Beckley, yeah. all of these organizations have figured out that essentially allowing psychotherapists to incorporate these treatments mm -hmm. in their practice as an adjunct to therapy mm -hmm. was the way to go. Yeah. And so what we did is that we interviewed 600 therapists and we asked them, what is the main barrier to entry for you to incorporate? ketamine-assisted psychotherapy yeah, yeah. in your practice as an adjunct to therapy. And the number one answer was finding and maintaining relationships with prescribing physicians. So say a little bit about that, because that's a bit of the, on the technical side of how this yeah. sort of space works, right? So, so ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic that's been FDA approved for probably 40 years now or something Since like the 70s. that, 70s, right? But recent trials have suggested it's effective for depression, anxiety, and so it's available at, through off-label use. And I think it's fair to say that the predominant market in, for ketamine as a mental health tool is in ketamine clinics where there's not really psychological support or therapeutic alliances that are being built. And so you went out and talked to 600 psychotherapists of varying degrees, I imagine, yep. right? Different levels of training, but all working with people in a some form of therapeutic relationship. and they wanted to incorporate ketamine, but the challenge was access through a, an MD prescriber or a nurse practitioner. Is that kind of a decent high level? Yeah, overview? that's very correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you always have a very good perspective on yeah. what we're doing. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I read all your press releases right. and your blogs. So. <laughs> well, you do a very good yeah, job yeah. at interpreting them. I think you're one of the only people when we did our first raise that had our model down. You had that amazing piece on us. Um, thank you. Um, no, thank you. Yeah, it was fun. So, yeah, basically, there's only 25,000 psychiatrists in America. There's 25,000 25, psychiatrists in America. 25,000 25, yeah. psychiatrists in America. MDs who are prescribing. Yeah. In and, and there's, wait, 330 million people in America. There's right? 40 million people in therapy today. Interesting. That's crazy. And these psychiatrists are mostly located in large cities. Yeah. Yeah. There's an equal shortage of psychiatric nurse practitioners. Uh -huh. So for the most part, when people are even being referred for a psychiatric medication management, they mm -hmm. go on wait lists. Prescribing physicians mm -hmm. is, is scarce. Mm -hmm. That's a huge bottleneck in our country in terms of mental health. Wow. And then when they have these relationships, yeah. not for any particular reasons, but because they're also self-employed and they have just different perspectives. They put a lot of pressure on the cost for the patient. Mm -hmm. They limit the revenue potential for the therapist mm -hmm. and they're fickle. They don't last. And so for continuity of care, that's really complicated. Mm -hmm. And so when you're doing this kind of work, what tends to happen for the most part is that they're referring out 
to these clinics. You're saying therapists. Psychotherapists. Psychotherapists right. who are working with people refer out to. They do. Yeah. Right. And they're also not working in the context of a collaborative care model, right? right? They're just simply sending the patient to a prescriber and they're writing the script, but it's not a collaborative care yeah, model, yeah. which is what we've, we've done. Yeah. yeah. And so they're referring out to a ketamine clinic who is basically they're handing off their patient right, to, right. to a clinic who's either not giving therapy or who have their own therapist, yeah. or they're sending them to direct to consumer platforms. And you're in therapy, you, you understand, like if someone's in therapy, yeah. finding a therapist is hard. Yeah. It takes, sometimes could take years. Just a quick anecdote. I, the therapist that I found back in September, like I live in Maine and there's not a lot, you know, it's a pretty, it's not New York City, but I got so lucky with the guy that I have. I, I just wanted to share this yeah. with you and Aaron, maybe we'll <laughs> edit this out. But, it, and, and like the time that I'm with him is, sacred time yeah. and it's like i've i've been in therapy before but like now i'm like oh my god and i know a little too much about statistics to know how unlikely that connection is so anyway i interrupted you no no that's a great case in point of what i'm saying is that it was really hard to yeah. find somebody that you had that connection with yeah. right and so imagine now that i'm asking you to have the most cathartic experience of your life outside of that relationship with someone you've never met or yeah. maybe a bot. Yeah. That's not great. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. just not yeah. a good experience for the patient. It doesn't support, mm -hmm. like a lot of research has shown that long-term behavioral changes are caused through integration work, mm -hmm. which is best done with someone who, who, who understands Trust and your background line. and it's in the context of a more broader therapeutic uh, alliance. And so, so that, that really is the problem set, right? And mm -hmm. so essentially what, it's really important to understand what we're building at Journey Clinical. Yeah. We're not an online ketamine clinic. Right. Like we never were an online ketamine clinic. Yeah. That's why sometimes when people ask, who are your competitors? Well, we don't really have any. We define a different category, yeah. which is essentially to build out an infrastructure solution to allow the distribution network of psychotherapists to make these treatments available to exist. We're a delivery mechanism for therapists to be the distribution yeah. network. And yeah. without that mechanism, there cannot be psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Right. It cannot exist. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the phrase collaborative care model. Maybe describe that in contrast to what you just described, right? You're not a DTC ketamine like a lot of the other ones. You're facilitating therapists to have access as another tool in their toolkit to work with their patients. Yeah. Collaborative care model sounds like a separate thing, or is it or is it not? It's not. Interesting. No, Same it's, more. it's the how. It's the how. Yeah, okay. right. It's okay. the how. So basically, we're building an infrastructure solution. What mm -hmm. does that infrastructure do? Yeah. It starts with a telehealth platform yeah. that supports a collaborative care model. Got it. Where psychotherapists become members of Journey Clinical. Okay. They refer their patients to us. Mm -hmm. Our in-house medical team takes on eligibility, prescriptions, mm -hmm. and outcome monitoring. We see the patient for a full hour intake. Yeah. If they're eligible, we'll send them enough ketamine for two cap sessions, which yeah. the, their therapist will deliver. And there are, we have a variety of modalities that we yeah. support from in person to group to remote. There's a full spectrum of it. Yeah, yeah. They'll come back for dose adjustments and we see them regularly for follow-up consultation. Oh, interesting. But what we also do, and this is what the collaborative care model is, is that essentially we're becoming the in-house doctor for these therapists, for the therapist. right? And so that's really important because I think that's one of the core offerings that we have yeah. actually, is that essentially... 
the therapists have the best perspective right. on the patient's mental health. They're seeing their patients. I, I don't know if you're seeing your therapist once a week. I'm seeing mine once a week. Yeah. Every week, my therapist knows exactly what's going on. They're yeah. tracking my progress. And so that data needs to be incorporated with the treatment plan. And so by creating a collaboration between yeah. our prescribers and the therapist, we're able to essentially build bespoke treatment plans at scale. So because of our, our model, we're able to do concierge mental health right, at right. scale. And what that does is one, it improves the quality of care mm -hmm. and it seriously mitigates negative outcomes, yeah, right? When yeah. there's a problem, our therapists have 24 seven access to a world-class medical team right? just by being members of Journey. Oh, they would only get that if they were working for a large hospital yeah, system, yeah, right? So yeah. it's a huge thing that we're offering. So what have been like the points of iteration where like from let's say day zero, you have an idea in your mind. Have there been, I don't want to use the term pivots because I feel like the vision has been unique and sort of the same, but what challenges have you faced and then what have you figured out to, to overcome those challenges within building this collaborative care model. If yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So there, were, there, there was one big pivot, and it was that originally when we started Journey, we wanted to have a space where therapists could rent space and do the sessions. Mm -hmm. And it was a really cool project with a, a really interesting person designing it. And the idea was to have people come in and have group, and then it was a whole modular idea. Anyway, it sounds really cool, but when we ran the numbers, it didn't work out. New York State, New York. Just State in real general, estate. like actually, like physical locations <laughs> yeah. at scale for like we wanted to build a scaled organization, right. and the reason why is not just because we wanted to take in venture capital. It's mm -hmm. because from our perspective, we had the skills to do it. My co-founder is my wife. I didn't yeah. mention that, and she's got she's amazing, and she has tremendous operational skills and mm -hmm. her own healing journey. But we felt we could do it. And we also felt that taking that approach would allow us to impact change at scale. Mm -hmm. And so that was the trade-off for us. We're going to build a large organization. Yeah. You need venture capital, but uh, that'll have a net positive impact, yeah. right? Um, and so when we, but we started off with that space and we, we were trying to, we really built it out. We looked at margin. At some point, we were trying to justify like the, the cost of mm -hmm. that space. And we were like, we just dropped the space and yeah. we built a medical service. Like it's a, it's a much more scalable offering. So that was an interesting experience for us as founders yeah. to like, be like, hang on, let's drop like this core thing that we thought was really important. And, and all of a sudden it's, um, I guess it's like when you have a psychedelic insight, when you like <laughs> let go of something, yeah. it was like a huge flow of energy. We actually were able to move through our funding much faster, yeah. like very yeah. quickly after that. And we actually met the guys at Beckley right after we did that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to have to put a disclaimer at the beginning that Beckley Waves is a, an investor sure. in Journey Clinical. But uh, So you're asking me if there were pivots. So yeah, that was yeah. one pivot. Then we had other insights, right? The other insights were that Therapists need training, so we incorporated training. So a company called Fluence designed mm -hmm. training for us. Then we needed tech, so we built a whole portal for the prescribers and for mm -hmm, the therapists mm -hmm. and this community. Then there's help with marketing yeah. and legal resources. Uh, then there's a patient portal. So like we we essentially had to become a health tech company, yeah, which yeah. is what we are. We're a health tech company, right, right? Right. And so so that was an evolving reality yeah. of getting started. So how did, I mean, so you were in theory, a physical space, a healing space, let's say, and, and then was it immediately like, oh no, we're, we have to be a, a health tech company or did that sort of dawn on you after, once you realized what you were? Yeah, we were a medical service, yeah. right? We were a healthcare service yeah. and we went from being a, I guess, in person and, and remote healthcare service, because mm -hmm. there was both to a fully health tech solution. Yeah. 
and so that was that changed of course the, that, the, that's the, a mindset change that's yeah. a sort of a, a vision change of perspective right yeah. yeah interesting yeah you mentioned that there's a, a few different formats in which people experience the ketamine experience right one-on-one group talk a little bit about how that because i i find one of the big bottlenecks that we see as mdma is approaching fda approval mdma assisted therapy for maps is approaching fda approval is the infrastructure for delivering care clinical infrastructure trained physicians trained therapists the phase two and three trials had two therapists for one patient three dosing sessions many preparation integration and so talk a little bit about how you see the the bottleneck of all that and how perhaps journey clinical fits in with future compounds that become available how do you how do you think about that yeah that's a great question so you know currently as i said we support diff- six different protocols the reason why we support six different protocols is we believe that therapists should have the choice mm-hmm. to be able to deliver their practice. They're essentially our, our main customer, mm-hmm. right? We're supporting them, so they should have the opportunity to develop their practice as best fits their style. Mm-hmm. We also think that patients probably want to have an evolving experience. You might want to start in person. You might want to do that at home mm-hmm. after. So offering that breadth uh, of, mm-hmm. off, of possibilities is really important to us. When it comes to new compounds, it very much depends on REMS and scheduling. And so we don't quite know yeah. what that scheduling and those REMs are going to be for MDMA right. and other compounds. You know, Beckley Psychotech are developing a compound themselves. And mm-hmm. so all of these compounds are going to have different REMs. We're completely drug agnostic. So what we've been able to do, what we're very confident we'll be able to do, is slightly modify our infrastructure mm-hmm. to, to meet, to meet whatever the, the demands right. are, requirements of yeah, that. Yeah. Right. And because we're a decentralized care system, most of infrastructure changes are pretty easy to do because we can be very flexible in how we do it. And so do you imagine providing some sort of service to a, a a brick and mortar clinic in the future? Is that, or is is it even still too early to even think in that regards? It's hard to, I mean, I think we need to know exactly what the requirements are going to be, right? So some, some compounds are being developed for at home use by by patients. So that doesn't change much. Some other compounds, I think maps are either thinking of white bagging or brown bagging. So like all of these things are. Quick distinction there, white bagging versus brown bagging. White bagging is, if I believe, if I'm accurate, it's uh, delivered to a pharmacy and the pharmacy is allowed to distribute it. And brown bagging is the patient gets to get it directly, if I'm, if I'm accurate. But this, this, so so there's a variety of modalities, and yeah. so we, we're we're able to to address that right. Mm-hmm. And I asked you this once, just out of curiosity, but you you're working right now with mental health providers, but ketamine is potentially also useful for other modalities. I'm thinking like pain or various sort of permutations of pain. I'm I'm not exactly sure of the literature, but are there other is Psychedelic-assisted physical therapy, A, <laughs> is that something that you think about? Or maybe this is kind of going outside of the, the scope of your, your mission and, and, and vision. But, I mean, you asked if I've ever gone back to school as an adult. I went back to school to study acupuncture right. as an older member of the class. But from my own experience and from the physiology and the biochemistry, it strikes me as that could be a really interesting combination, right? 
a lot of what we're talking about with with psychedelics is combination therapy, like drug plus therapy mm -hmm. in some capacity. And so there's a lot of permutations of what that could look like. Could we ever see a de uh, uh, acupuncturist on the, <laughs> the journey clinical roster? I love that question. I think that there's a lot of room for complementary to psychedelic therapy. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that things are tools and they all work in combination too. Mm -hmm. So I work with acupuncturists actually quite regularly mm -hmm. and physical therapists are amazing. The approach that we've taken is that we choose to only work with licensed mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is twofold. The number one reason really is that these are individuals who mm -hmm. spent years yeah. studying to get licenses. Then they spent years getting the experience to expand their licensure. So yeah. they're uniquely equipped. Right. They're already trained to yeah. do this, right? So the additional trainings that they're doing are simply a compliment. A compliment to what they're already so they're already yeah, equipped, right? right? right. So they can they're they're already trained to help you process past emotions mm -hmm. and integrate them in your life. And so that that process is yeah. already there. Yeah. And so that's a tremendous increase in the standard of care for patients. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is they're licensed, right? So they have to answer to a licensing board. So that also I think mitigates certain negative outcomes, there. right? So so for us as a company, but it's very yeah. specific to journey, we choose to 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 focus on that. Sure. So I, I mentioned one of the reasons I'm excited to speak with you is I think you have a unique lens on the field, right? A lot of the people in this space are, are, are in drug development and biotech. They're running clinical trials. Some people are in the policy side. They're sort of advocating either in you know, the federal means or state and local to sort of decriminalize. But you have this perch where you're both a, a health tech founder and an entrepreneur. and catering to a community of providers that are really, I mean, there's the indigenous groups, there's the underground, but as it's emerging into the culture, like the group of people that are on your platform strike me as maybe pioneering is too cliche of a term, but like pushing the envelope right. in, 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 a, in a novel direction or on the leading edge of a, of a paradigm shift, you might say. And so I'm curious, stepping back more broadly, what's your sense of like the overall emergence of this psychedelic renaissance, for yeah. lack of a better phrase? That's a wonderful question. I, I would correct you on one one perspective. Please like, do. <laughs> is that I, I don't think that the people on our platform are actually pushing the envelope. And, and I, I think that you'd be surprised to see that we have people who have never heard of psychedelics or never done psychedelic therapy mm -hmm. who start with our platform, who go through the training, who go through the, the process mm -hmm. and who start to build a cap practice from, from scratch mm -hmm. because they're seeing that their patients have interest in this, that yeah. it's an interesting modality, that it actually is the only paradigm shift we've seen in mental health the yeah. last 50 years. Yeah. And so the demand for this to happen from therapists that are naive to psychedelics yeah. is actually quite Oh, very interesting. Large and growing. Yeah. So that's something I think is important to shift in this yeah. perspective. Of, oh, you have this small fringe of people who are right, super right, bought in right. to actually, there are a growing number of the 1.3 million therapists in America that have a real interest in delivering this treatment because yeah. if you have patients that aren't progressing for 10 years at a time, yeah. Yeah. like that, that creates therapist burnout, right? Totally. And so like having access to other treatments, they're yeah. seeing it work. There's a lot of literature about that. Yeah. And so this is actually happening. And I think that's an amazing wave to start to see shift in the way mental health is delivered. Yeah. Probably very much like EMDR came about yeah. um, to, to therapists. And so that's really, really happening, I think. 
And that's, to me, the advent of the beginning of mass adoption. Mm -hmm. The other thing I love to see, and, and I think it's one of the things I love the most about our model, is that I feel like we've built a non-extractive model mm. where basically we are a for-profit company, mm -hmm. but we have a virtuous circle yeah. where if our therapists do well, we do yeah, well. Yeah. And, and that really is awesome. Like yeah. We've seen yeah. people go from nothing to have a 90% cap practice and uh, be booked out. And, and yeah. it's, it's so that, that, that really is. Their success is your success. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I love that. That's actually. nice. Yeah. It's rare to see in healthcare. Yeah. I feel yeah. right. Like, maybe we're going into sort of thorny territory, but it just feels like unique models like this need to continue to emerge. And because you use the phrase non-extractive and it just seems like so much of healthcare, especially is the incentives between payer, patient, provider are so mismatched right. and weirdly construed. There's such a gray area of mixed incentives. So it's nice to see that that is how you're operating. That's pretty cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think decentralized models of care yeah. offer that opportunity. When you say decentralized models of care, you're, you're describing your journey clinical, obviously, right. but are there other contexts in which you imagine that phrase being used? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have models that have helped people access insurance, for example, yeah. in, the, in certain ways that exist that have been really successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's ways of essentially bringing different pieces of the puzzle together in a way that supports all of the participants. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what co infrastructure companies like ours mm -hmm. and others like companies like Headway and Alma have done that. And so there are, there are examples of this yeah. out there that exist. And I yeah. think that more organizations like that might help bridge the gap. Like, yeah. I, I personally believe that in order to change the system, you have to operate from within the system. Mm -hmm. And so understanding... Mm -hmm. Where are the gaps in the system that we could plug and how we can support expanding access mm -hmm. to different parts of, of healthcare are going to be essential for that. To That's a change. very mature perspective. <laughs> you strike me as an optimistic person. And you, you just described your company, which I think is beautifully designed and, and working from within the system to change it. How do you maintain that optimism? Because you are in the healthcare system and you're not just in the, the American healthcare system. You are in mental health, which whether it's, it's, it's parity in terms of reimbursement or access to psychiatrists or psychotherapy or how do you stay? How do you keep a smile on your face? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I keep a smile on my face because I see the results that we've mm. grown to. We have like 900 therapists. We delivered 5,000 cap sessions in mm -hmm. 10 months. We've seen 93% uh, improvement like uh, of our patients report improvement. So it's been really, uh, that's very motivating yeah. for me to do that. And I also feel that there are a lot of examples of taking the right perspective mm -hmm. to a problem. I think that if, if you take a polarized view on a problem, you might probably be confused about mm -hmm. the situation, right? You're confused that... If you take a polarized view... Right. Like, this is bad, this is good. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, I think there's some confusion that happens there. And yeah. probably the confusion that, that occurs is not only yours, right? If I'm polarized that you're evil and yeah. I'm good, and you're probably going to think that I'm evil and you're good. Yeah. And so from that perspective, I don't think there's much that we can resolve. Totally. Really, right? Yeah. And so essentially what I believe is that I don't think anybody's poorly intentioned. I really genuinely don't. Yeah. I don't think that insurance companies are poorly intentioned. <laughs> I don't think that the DEA is poorly intentioned. Mm -hmm. I don't think the FDA, I don't think the government is poorly intentioned. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that people have certain incentive. Yeah. And so being honest about 
everybody's incentives and finding ways to align them or at least to have these incentives mm -hmm. meet is the way to to move forward, mm -hmm. right? And so insurance companies want to generate revenue. They're yeah. private insurance companies, right? And then regulators want to bring regulation to protect people. And healthcare companies are for profit and some are not for profit. Mm -hmm. And so like there is a spectrum of perspectives here. And so I think the only way to move forward is to meet people where they're at mm -hmm. and try to find a solution that actually moves the needle. I, I, I generally don't believe that saying, oh, this is really bad. Like, I, think yeah. the mental, I think the healthcare system is broken in America. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I really yeah. do. I think I'm a Swiss. Yeah. I come from a country <laughs> where everybody has yeah. medical insurance. Right? Yeah. It's just common. It's yeah. not a, you can pick your doctor. Right? Right. It's not like right. there's no out-of-pocket coverage, yeah. nothing. Right? So I think that's insane. <laughs> but I also think that if I simply state that, I'm right. not really moving the needle. Yeah. So there is a, a world where insurance companies want to pay less money for people who are chronically sick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so bringing treatments to them that do that, yeah. that essentially save them money, yeah. is going to incentivize them to cover it. Totally. Right? And so right. that's a perspective, I think, that has fertile ground sure. for collaboration. Sure. Is the same thing with the DEA. They don't... The DA is not a bad agency. They right. they they they're enforcing a law. Yeah. That and they have that's their job. And right. so you have you want to educate them on like the benefits of telehealth, for example. Right. right. And and they're gonna adapt their perspective. So it's it's it, mm -hmm. I think that's where I'm saying like if we're as an industry, and I think it's really important, yeah, we come together and we're able to help educate other industries or regulators on the benefits of what we're doing. And I think we're doing it well. Twelve thousand people yeah. in Denver coming together yeah. to talk about this is pretty awesome. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's that's the way forward. And I don't I don't think I'm alone with that. Perspective. Oh, totally. No, I that's well said. That's well said. So there's a Ryan Hate Act, which I think was passed in 2008-ish, something like that, right? Which reduced or kind of constrained the ability to prescribe scheduled substances via telehealth. It, it required an in-person visit and diagnosis with a physician, and then subsequent medication filling could happen via telehealth, right? COVID, the uh, PHE. Public health emergency. Public health emergency, right? That kind of put a waiver on the Ryan Hate Act so that prescribing scheduled substances could be done through telehealth without the in-person visit. A lot of direct-to-consumer ketamine clinics started with that, but also just like other mental health and, and prescribing companies. I think the, what is it, Cerebral is kind of the, the poster child of that. But the rolling back of those public health emergency waiver is kind of in limbo right now is that right maybe you could yeah. let me pass the baton to okay, you what sure. what is the ryan hate act and, yeah. and the public health emergency and, and how does that fit into your business and also more telehealth writ large for sure so the ryan hate act was passed because a teenager called ryan hate suffered an overdose of opiates that was prescribed to him by an online compounding pharmacy mm -hmm. and so the that that act was put together to dismantle those kinds of businesses mm -hmm. There has been on the DEA's desk for 14 years a mandate to put out a telehealth license, mm. which never happened. So that was something that was in limbo for a long, oh, long wow. time. And when the PHE, so the public health emergency, yeah. occurred because of COVID, there were waivers that included the Ryan Hate Act to be able to send controlled substances 
without an in-person visit right. through telehealth. Yeah. And so that sprung, as you said, a variety of organizations and offerings, but it wasn't simply limited to ketamine or yeah. even cerebral who has some uh, infamy about yeah. their approaches, but there are also very positive aspects. For example, well, I mean, ketamine was a very positive yeah. aspect because a lot of people were helped by that. Mm -hmm. And also addiction issues like Suboxone was now available. Was made available having... through telehealth, and the opiate crisis is tremendous in yeah. America, yeah. right? And and other like hundreds of medications to millions of Americans in rural areas w gained access yeah. at a better price to life-saving medication, and that is the advent of telehealth, right? That genie is out of the bottle, and it is never going back. Never. That is the world we live in, right? We are in a world where technology supports humans. We're yeah. seeing it with AI. It's not different. There is uh, new tools that are telehealth that enable broader access mm -hmm. and better pricing to life-saving treatments yeah. to patients. And so that is just our new normal, yeah. right? And so that supports small practices, it supports large practices. Yeah. It just, it makes our world more accessible. Yeah. And going back on that is impossible. And so when the Biden administration announced, they always said they would give 60 days notice uh, that as of May 11th, mm -hmm. the PHE will be rolled back. Mm -hmm. The DEA came out with modified regulation mm -hmm. to what uh, the prescription of controlled substances were. There was either the option of having an in-person visit yep. and then subsequent refills through telehealth yep. or a 30-day supply of controlled substances yep. and then everything, a referral were to happen and then everything happens through telehealth. And so yeah. the referral, just to be clear, it is that any physician with a DEA license yeah. see the patient, the patient and doesn't make a diagnosis mm -hmm. that that um, referring medical provider simply mm -hmm. refers the patient back, back to, to a specialist. The... So like very much like if you go to your general practitioner and you need a root canal, they're not right. gonna do it for you, they'll send yeah. you to a professional right, or a right. psychiatrist, yeah. right? It's the same thing. Yeah. So that was actually a pretty good, there was some flexibility shown sure. from the DA's part yeah. to make this treatment more accessible. And they also offered, I think it was a six month grace period for people who were in telehealth to mm -hmm. have that. To have that uh, evaluation. Occur. And what happened was that they opened that proposition for commentary and they received 38,000 comments yeah. that were all tremendously in support of ketamine assisted psychotherapy, yeah, the, the access to telehealth. Yeah. And like, it, it was just a huge uh, outflow yeah. of, of, of pushback, actually, yeah. to yeah. restrictive guidelines. And so the, the DA did, I think, a really good job where they, they actually decided to take those comments, extend the PHE waiver until, I think, November, mm -hmm. and then come back with what we expect to be more relaxed guidelines. So there is movement yeah. Yeah. there, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so that, that's the current state of sure. affairs. For us, we have a decentralized model. So incorporating that really, it's not something that we expect is going to disrupt our business. I mean, we've been planning for this since we started. So we've totally. had a variety of, of plans that work fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch on that we didn't get into? I'm just very excited about the space where we're at. Yeah. We're having an increasing number of people adopt these treatments mm -hmm. in their practice. Patients have interest in, in, in having access to these modalities. Mm -hmm. There is capital flowing, even though it seems a little bit constrained right mm -hmm. now. You, you recently raised a round. Tell us about that. What? So we raised our Series A recently and- uh, Union, Led by Union Square. Union Square Ventures yeah. led our round. And yeah, I mean, that was a big- 
deal for us. I mm-hmm. think having a tier one investor mm-hmm. choose to be our partner. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal for Journey Clinical. It's a big deal for the space. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. And it was a big deal for the space also to see validation. I think yeah. from a generalist tier one investor. Yeah really making a bet on there. And so I think that is, while we are seeing what is a bit of a winter mm-hmm. in the investment cycle in psychedelics, especially in specialized funds, I believe that we are also, and I, I have seen like interest peak from tier one mm-hmm. generalist mm-hmm. investors who are looking to potentially place bets in this space. So I think that like all emerging industries, mm-hmm. we've seen that with crypto at some point, mm-hmm. or even yeah. tech, right? In 2000, yeah. tech, the dot-com bubble burst, and then everybody was like, this is it. No yeah. one's ever investing in an internet company again. And yeah. basically now, those are the blue chips of, of, of today. Totally. And so there is a contraction in, in the cycle of our industry. Yeah. But I also believe that there is going to be a huge expansion coming. And the reason is very simple. Mm. There is 50 million people in America suffering from mental health issues. Mm-hmm. It's a growing problem, mm-hmm. right? The number one healthcare crisis in the world, it's not cancer, mm-hmm. it's not obesity, mm-hmm. it's mental health. Mm-hmm. That is going to be the number one cost in the world in the coming years. And so finding solutions that can address that problem is essential. And yeah. psychedelics is really the only paradigm shift that we've seen. And so yeah. I think there's going to be real investments, very high quality founders yeah. that are going to start to emerge. And so I'm very excited for that to come. What are you excited about? I mean, you have a beautiful company that you're working on, but what are some other ideas? What are, what are things that you would be excited to see a high quality founder come in and create? Is there, is there something that you're like, if I didn't have this, I'd be doing something <laughs> else? Like what, how do you think about that? It's hard to say. I have tunnel vision a bit sometimes about what I'm doing. <laughs> so I spend 14 hours a day doing this. So, so that, that, that's just true. But Obviously, drug development is very interesting. Sure. I'm very excited to to see different compounds come across and being able to offer even combination treatments to our patient. I think that's going to be super cool. Obviously, incorporating technology into, I think, healthcare in general and, and mental health is one of them is going to be very interesting. I don't know how AI is going to play into this, but I have some thoughts. We'll see how that comes out. But you want to share some thoughts? I don't know. They're too. They're too, <laughs> they're too out weird. there. So, so I'm not sure I do. But, but I, I, I think that that's something that that is definitely going to change the way yeah. we interact. And so, to me, anything that I'm, I'm, I'm positive yeah. on, including technology into yeah. into our, our our lives and and to facilitate them with responsibly, however. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I'm, I'm again. I'm glad to bear witness to your optimism because I don't always feel that way. And, and, and so when I'm around people who've got a, a, a smile like that and are, and are pumped and see the world that you do, I feel like it rubs off on me. So oh, good. I'm glad. I appreciate well, it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, depending on the day and which side of the bed I wake up on. It's cool. Well, I am grateful that you, you took the time to chat with me. I've, like I said, I've enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of years and Likewise. following your work and writing about the space. And so it's been great. Again, Jonathan Sabah, CEO, co-founder of Journey Clinical. People who are interested in your work, where can they where can they go? They can go to journeyclinical.com. Isn't that the most ridiculous thing? Yeah. Oh, you want to do it again? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening to the Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, 
head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.